BFBS. Radio 2. Sit with Christopher Lee. There we are, Vicky Turner and the BFBS news team. Thank you very much. And thank you. Thank you for joining us. You are, you are very welcome at today's Sit Rep Roundtable. In this hour, Afghanistan, Obama, why he can't win in America at last. The date for the Bloody Sunday inquiry. But why have we forgotten the Bahamusa inquiry? Week 15? Zimbabwe and the World Cup connection. Do you get it? Burma or is it? Turkey, why the generals are revolting. Falklands, just good friends. Golf threat, good news for the Royal Navy. And who are we to tell other people what to do? Well, with me at the Sitrep Roundtable, the former Daily Mail diplomatic editor John Dickey, Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson, and the sometime Kremlin advisor and the editor-in-chief of the global politics satirical website, Stirring Trouble International, Internationally, Alexander Nekrasov. Now, John Dickey, today in Delhi, official talk started between... India and Pakistan, the first since the 2008, that was the Mumbai. The 2008 when the Mumbai blast took place and... Uh, 174 people killed, including the assassins. And like any other meeting between the two of them, the uh, Indian and uh, Pakistan foreign ministers, there were shots in Kashmir uh, 24 hours before. It's a difficult situation. There have been two wars over Kashmir since the... It's all about Kashmir, really, it's, isn't it? Well, it's basically about that, but because the Indians want to get the Pakistan government to commit themselves to more aggressive uh, counter-terrorism activity. They have done quite a bit in the last six months, as we all know, but they want more done because they believe that the Mumbai uh, affair was, was largely orchestrated by uh, people in Pakistan. So this is uh, a beginning, but it's only a beginning because they're only going to meet for one day and you can't solve the problems between these two great uh, nuclear powers in one day. But at least they should begin to arrange for a resumption of formal negotiations. Which will be the key thing. That's the most important Julian, I mean, a lot of people say, gosh, uh, Kashmir, what is Kashmir? I mean, Kashmir was a glitch when partition came, i.e. Pakistan was created, India got its independence back in 1947. As John says, war since then, all over Kashmir. That's right, uh, because India walked in and grabbed Kashmir because there was no plebiscite, as far as I remember, deciding w- which side they would go to, which was the agreement. Mm. And, and Pakistan says that the majority of the people who live in uh, Kashmir are uh, Pakistanis and Muslims, and therefore Pakistan, uh, Kashmir should belong to Pakistan. It's um, Alexander Nekrasov, uh, two nuclear-armed estranged states. Now, maybe there's never going to be a nuclear war, but the problem is that there have been wars, and now everybody always says it's when, not if, there could be a nuclear conflict. Yes, I think you're right. It's very dangerous, isn't it, to think that two countries hate each other like that and uh, they have nuclear arsenals. But I also think that it's absolutely critical for the uh, success in Afghanistan of NATO to have those countries on friendly terms or, or at least something like friendly terms because Pakistan being sort of looking both directions, it doesn't really deploy enough forces uh, in, the, in the West to tackle the Taliban. Because it sort of thinks, no, no, Taliban is, 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 is a small issue compared to India if they attack. So I think it's crucial for the West to help this process which has started. Yeah. Um, Gillian Thompson, I mean, I heard um, and saw quite a lot of coverage of General David Petraeus saying this is uh, a long-haul war, and that was just this week. 
We've all known it's a long haul war, haven't we? Is there some something which we, I haven't quite caught up with yet that there is a, a an end tape somewhere which we ne- we, we may not want to be there? Well, no, I think that the trouble is that though everyone was saying it's going to be a long-haul war, people were not listening, and you only have to listen to people talking on the radio and television. They keep on saying, you know, when is this going to end? When is we're going to see, for example, some end to this operation that's going on at the moment? And they're told, well, you're not going to see an end for months. Hmm. And uh, it's just a question of getting the message across, I think. Right, John, uh, John Dickey, uh, it, it, the spin-offs, um, if that's the right term, are sometimes politically very dangerous. For example, we've got this week in the Netherlands, the Dutch government has fallen apart all over sending troops to Afghanistan. That that caused the government to fall, and uh, people wonder, will there be a domino effect? There's a lot of concern, for example, in Canada, the high level of casualties in comparison to other contributing nations. What do you mean if the Canadians see that the Dutch are not going to renew in autumn, they say, well, we're going to pull out as well? Well, they are thinking of pulling out themselves, and the Australians are unhappy. Uh, There are other uh, European countries that are only committed to training programs, no combat commitment. So it does begin to look a little bit uh, gloomy. On the other hand, there's one little ray of hope I found in the last uh, few days, and that is that the constructive element of the uh, British forces is is going ahead very successfully. Uh, Farmers have been given maize seeds and alfalfa seeds and vegetables to grow. Um, Teachers are moving in to reopen the schools. This is the sort of thing that would convince the people that we're not just in for a quick fight and, and moving on. We're there to construct the country. Julian, what do your people tell you? I mean, is this, it's not just military spin that we're hearing at the moment. There is something going on that we ought to be pretty pleased or comforted by. I mean, I'm hearing from people who really know, uh, people uh, like uh, Gordon Messenger, who's CDS's official spokesman. And, and a Royal Marine and a Royal general. Marine, and therefore he exchanges views with me that, that I wouldn't actually publicise. But the message is, yeah, they're, they're doing well. It's going to take a very long time. Be- and he keeps on saying shooting the Taliban is not the game. Killing mm. the Taliban is not the game. The game is pacifying, building, and getting the trust of the people. Why should they trust us if all we do is rush in there, bomb a few of them, and then disappear? Alexander Krasov. Well, I, I remember I was advising the Kremlin on the Chechen war, and this is the time to talk to the Taliban. When you attack and you are in a in, in position of strength, talk to them. That's first. Second, where do they get the arms mm. from? This is a crucial question. Who arms the Taliban? Because nobody asks Everybody that arms the Taliban. No, no, the question is which country? Because this is massive supplies. This is not some, you know, rifle or something. So are we actually talking about some elements in Pakistan, for example, who are supplying them with arms? If so, it has to be cut off. So on this position of strength, talk to them now. And, and this operation will be finished quite soon. Mm. If not... It will, well, it's going well now, but it might last quite some time. I agree with Alexander. You advance on a broad front. It's fighting, talking, doing all the things they're doing with, with wheat and, and, and agriculture, and, and you advance in that way. And you, you, you pay people yes. if necessary. Mm-hmm. But I think it's probably too early to think of, of serious talks uh, at, a, at a leadership level, because until you got... Evans on the ground that things are being organised for the benefit of the people. Uh, there isn't the same incentive for uh, the Taliban leadership to say, well, I don't think we're going to make much headway here. I think we've got to wait until there's an overwhelming feeling among the, the tribes that 
things are really improving. Can I just come back quickly, John, because I want to go to um, uh, the States now. But um, that meeting today between the two foreign secretaries that we started off with, Pakistan, mm. uh, Dr. Salman uh, Bashir, Bashir and, and India's Mrs. Yeah, Nirupama Rao, yeah. they're very intelligent people. Mm. They're not dummies. They're not just put up as officials, are they? No, no. Um, th- she knows, as an India, India's foreign secretary, mm. she knows that if we can start sorting, or somebody can start sorting Afghanistan, then, as Alexandra says, the pressure is off Pakistan. Mm. Therefore, there's far more likely to be an easing of talks over Kashmir, or is that just being too academic? No, I think that is a, a step that would take them in the right direction until the Indians are convinced that the Pakistanis are really taking more and more trouble to control the areas that have been subject to Taliban in intrusion. Until that happens, I think there'll be a reluctance to go into detail on the Kashmir issue. But once you get a start made on Afghanistan, I think it will follow that Kashmir will seem less intractable as a problem. Okay, let's go to Cedar City, where uh, Michael Stathis is, Professor of Politics at the University of Southern Utah. Um, Michael, good morning. Um, Good morning. uh, Tell me something. Do you get this sort um, sort of all these connections made, do you think, in the debate in the United States about... Afghanistan and the region, that it's not just about boots on the ground in Afghanistan? Oh, I think very definitely that uh, uh, the comment that is being made uh, in the halls of Congress, and uh, in fact, the president has made this comment too, that uh, this is reminiscent of uh, the old phrase, the battle here is uh, for the hearts and minds of the uh, people of of Afghanistan. And uh, it does put a damper on uh, hopes for certain military solutions. And uh, the last uh, the last few days, you know, uh, certain blunders over the last couple of weeks involving uh, the deaths of uh, many, many civilians, seems to be almost in uh, contradistinction to uh, winning that war for hearts and minds. And the, I, the American people are sensitive to that. There was an opinion poll in one of the uh, program here called Newsnight, as a sort of political pro- uh, program on the BBC television, and it said that most people most people in the United Kingdom, think the war is unwinnable. Would that at all be reflected in the United States? It's, it's, it's difficult to say. Uh, this week, of course, uh, you know, most Americans are worried about uh, uh, gold, silver, and bronze, uh, bronze medals. But I think when the subject does come up, and, uh, a lot of Americans are uh, asked to comment on this seriously. One, uh, the comment is, what does this have to do with American security, number first and foremost. In what way is the war against the Taliban um, fostering greater American uh, security? Two, how is it helping us to get after um, members of al-Qaeda and uh, Osama bin Laden? That is still... Uh, for most Americans, the the, the number one goal. Um, the the war against the Taliban for many Americans is seen as uh, as a sideshow, and uh, uh, when reports come back of military failures, of um, uh, well, not so much failures, uh, uh, mistakes that uh, uh, end in the uh, deaths of multiple civilian Afghan people, the, the feeling is that this isn't right. 
Um, and I think most Americans are convinced this is not going to be won by bullets. Uh, it has to be won by other means, and I don't know that they're convinced that uh, uh, that is the kind of thinking that is coming out of Washington. Yeah, I mean, the thinking coming out of Washington is reflected, I think, today or later today with President Obama having to have this mass sort of public thinking um, about how you bring different political sides together to, fo- to, to, to resolve fundamental ways of running the country. He's taking an enormous uh, gamble today uh, by inviting uh, members of the, uh, as uh, uh, one would say in London, the loyal opposition. Not so loyal here, I would say, um, but uh, to invite them uh, to the White House uh, for a major contact, particularly uh, on the health care issue, which has dominated domestic politics uh, for over a year now, and um, to uh, attempt again and again to, to, to foster some kind of working relationship with people across the aisle. And uh, if, if it can't be done on certain domestic uh, uh, agendas, the difficulty for finding common ground um, uh, for finalizing the operation in Iraq, for dealing with the Taliban, uh, for dealing with Pakistan to help in um, uh, dealing with al-Qaeda. Uh, it's going to be a very difficult task for uh, President Obama indeed. Is he, is he finding, uh, he, President Obama, is he finding Washington ungovernable or is he finding America ungovernable? Uh, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I, think that, I think it's part of two. I think one, uh, despite the fact that he had been a, uh, a senator, uh, uh, that uh, being president is a dif- different operation. And uh, he, I think, is still learning the ropes of how to operate uh, as president of the United States with a country that is uh, very, very badly divided. Uh, This is not a new thing. This has been going on for a very long time, but uh, it has been uh, particularly, uh, I'll use the word rabid, um, uh, since the the election. Um, The Republicans uh, have become known as the party of no. Uh, It it doesn't matter what the issue is. In fact, it doesn't matter if it's an issue that they supported six months ago. Uh, If the president attempts to support it now, the Republicans will be against it. It has become completely politicized. Right. Michael Stasis, thank you very much indeed. Oh, thank you. There we are, John. John Dickey. Um, We can't uh, ignore the president's ratings, which are about the lowest of any president Mm. for this time in office has ever had, because how he acts and how successful he is at home, we have to sort of, by and large, follow, or we do. That's very true. That's one of the legacies of uh, Tony Blair's uh, time uh, at number 10 Downey Street. He uh, tied us in so uh, tightly uh, to the way the Americans were seeing the world, uh, getting involved in issues, uh, uh, avoiding other issues, so that we're just uh, half a step behind them all the time. And even Gordon Brown, who wasn't a great... uh, chum of, of Tony Blair, despite the, the recent uh, assurances that they all saw eye to eye, he is still very much uh, uh, an Atlanticist, seeing that uh, Britain's best interests, both uh, politically and economically and financially... Who are, Gordon Brown is. Gordon Brown is. Yeah. Um, he is convinced that that is uh, the best course for Britain, is to be closely uh, working with the United States. Alexander Nekrasov is shaking his head. 
Yes, well, well, I, I never heard that uh, Gordon Brown was an Atlanticist, but uh, we, 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 I, we, John probably knows better than I do. But uh, the problem uh, with uh, Obama is that, um, first of all, let me give you some uh, sensational news we probably didn't hear before. Right. It, uh, my inside sources in Washington told me that actually during the election uh, campaign, Bush and his team were on the side of Obama. They decided, they told to cut off all funding for McCain, and the Texan billionaires didn't give a penny, or a cent, sorry. And this comes from my source, well-placed in This Washington. is wasn't Sarah Palin told you Well, this, I can't it? tell you this, because it's... it's, 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 it's I have nothing right. heard about it. <laughs> no, I think Sarah would have told Christopher first. I mean, yeah. she knows where a lot is lying. And uh, what I'm, uh, the, the point I'm making here is this. Um, no. the, the Republicans now feel that Obama will lose Congress in uh, the elections uh, this year. They know once it, he loses that that's it, he's finished. I mean, he will not push through any policy at all. So now, as Michael brilliantly pointed out, they say no to everything, even if it doesn't make sense. No sense at all. Yeah. They say no because they want him to be defeated. Mm. Then he's finished, of mm -hmm. course. Is this Moscow's view as well? Uh, no, it's not Moscow's view. It's, it's uh, people inside the system in Washington are telling me this. Is it also possibly, and I'd be interested to hear what Alexander has to say on this, that he doesn't have the political acumen that someone like FDR had who was facing a similar situation where he was able to get things through because he understood how the system worked. And he also knew he, inexperienced. And the he problem also with knew Obama, that he could stay on as president. Mm -hmm. FDR, the this one can't. The mm -hmm. problem with Obama is he has a weak team of advisors. Mm -hmm. Some of them come from the Bill Clinton era. Mm -hmm. They're not very good people. Well, I mean, as a lot of them are from Chicago, and that's one of the complaints of the Washington insiders that that they think that uh, Chicago is a much different case from Washington and therefore he's being badly advised. He wasn't a senator for very long. Either. No, well, four years. And you know, he's compared to Putin in that because Putin dragged everybody from St. Petersburg into Moscow. Mm. Obama brought mm. everybody from Chicago. Chicago mm. is not exactly a place which has a good reputation in America. But, well, yes, well, well, you know, St. Petersburg <laughs> in, in, in Moscow. Mm. I mean, it was all right bringing in the Romanovs, wasn't it? But there are no, 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 no. I mean, his Chicago. advisors came all, yes. all come from St. Petersburg. Yes. And St. Petersburg is not Moscow. No. The view from St. Petersburg is sort of regional. The view from Moscow is global. And the same with Obama. The view from Chicago, Chicago is sort of, you know, local. The view from Washington should be global. Okay, we're going to do something else now. Uh, you're talking about um, not having any money. <laughs> you could have been talking about the MOD, couldn't you? They're at it again, you know. MPs are hammering the MOD. Incompetence, they call it. Very bad bookkeeping, they call it. Well, given the recent events among MPs, that may be considered a bit rich, but the um, House of Commons Def Defence Committee is saying that the MOD has failed to balance its accounts. Ho, ho. Missing money, etc. Here's J.B. Gordon. This week, the All-Party Commons Defence Committee said the MOD is failing to account for major and sensitive equipment in its annual reports. But the real purpose of the report is to show that in spite of we'll-do-better promises from the MOD, it seems Britain's Defence Committee cannot keep them. The main concern was the accounting for the JPA system, with disclosures of overcharging on food and accommodation by £83 million and errors in delivering specialist pay amounting to £238 million. The committee chairman, James Albusnett, said these mistakes cannot be acceptable. If they are going to have a comprehensive computerised system of paying our armed forces, they need to get that right, both in terms of the proper payment to the people who are sacrificing so much for us, but also in terms 
of the proper use of money that the Ministry of Defence has given. Part of the report says that £155 million worth of Bowman radios can't be accounted for and says that the security implications of losing such equipment were significant. The Secretary of State for Defence, Bob Ainsworth, has responded to the report by saying much of it is old news. He says JPA has had its issues but is improving and the inference of lost Bowmans is unfair because 10% of them are in transit at any one time and therefore don't register on the system. However, he also said that improvements in those accounting processes were in hand. This is the third year in a row that the MOD's accounts have been qualified, or in other words, criticised, and that despite past assurances given by the Secretary of State. And James Arbuthnot said that this should be ringing bells. Well, it must be a really worrying thing for the Ministry of Defence's accounts to be qualified three years running. It means that either it's unable to provide evidence that it's spending money correctly, or it means that it is spending money incorrectly. But the real victims of this seemingly hopeless office work are the services. All three of them are asking for more wartime equipment and the Treasury is threatening to cut back. Instead of being able to make a case for the defence, the MOD apparently can't be trusted with the money it does get from across the road in the Chancellor's office. Jamie Gordon reporting for Citrep. Jamie, thank you very much indeed. Julian, Julian Thompson... Why is the MOD, and I say this advisedly, without prejudice, why is the MOD so incompetent? It's a very good question, to which I don't know the answer. I've always known The MOD doesn't know it either. Know. That's the problem, isn't it? And I've always known they were incompetent, but uh, no-one seems to be able to put their fingers on why. Um, you see, when I, they say... I, I don't have an answer to it. You see, when they say it's £155 million, pounds, as Jamie was telling us, one... Fifty-five million pounds worth of Bowman radios. They don't know where they are. Now it's all right saying they're in transit somewhere, but not one hundred and fifty-five million. But every defence minister, like the Russian defence minister, is even worse. They ah. lose nuclear rockets, you know, missiles. So I, I don't think it's specifically the British defence minister. But it's, it's the same all over Whitehall. I mean, you look at National Health Service. It's got all sorts of budgetary problems. Yeah. Uh, recently, uh, the audit committee. Uh, criticised the Department for International Development, which has a budget of over nine million pounds, and crucially, which, what's going which on is in four, four times the amount that the Foreign Office gets. They have lost hundreds of millions in aid to Malawi. They can't account for what happened to it. There's no monitoring of a lot of the aid programmes that we send abroad. I mean, maybe therefore, I mean, this is what um, uh, Alexandra started off. Maybe the reality is that our system of governance, of bureaucracy. Uh, and we're amazingly smug about it, aren't we? Oh, yes, we know, so we know how to do things. Um, we tell other countries how to do it. Maybe you just cannot, you cannot manage things on this scale. Maybe these ministries are not so much, oh, we'll cut them back mm. a bit. You have to accept that you don't do it perfectly. Julian? Well, I think, I think that's partly it. The, the, the scale is so enormous now compared with, say, 100 years, 150 years ago that there is simply no way of catching up. And, for example, on the radios, I'm sure they're all around somewhere. What's happened is someone hasn't signed for them. It's quite simple. They're sticking there on the back of a soldier out in the middle of the bundu somewhere. Um, that's, that's what's happened to them. They haven't just disappeared. Well, there they, are just, two, they can't account for them. There probably. are two opinions. <clears throat> Some people say it's corruption and people steal this money. I don't think so. Mm. I think it mostly to do with stupidity. And the uh, money just disappears because nobody is in the, in the, in the ministry 
actually feels it's their money. You know, it's, it's sort of money somewhere. So, you know, you sign something and you don't care about it. I don't think uh, we should be very uh, un- uh, critical of the defense uh, ministry in Britain because I tell you the amounts of money disappearing in America, uh, the Pentagon and, mm-hmm. and the Russian defense uh, ministry, you'd be amazed. Mm-hmm. 155 million mm-hmm. every day probably in Russia. I don't feel any better about this. Listen, <laughs> I want you to know that. Um, let's go on to something else. Um, the, uh, what's known as the Savile Inquiry. 14 people died after being shot in Londonderry by soldiers on January the 30th, 1972. This became known as Bloody Sunday. Now, the inquiry into what happened uh, began under the chairmanship of Lord Savile, hence the Savile Inquiry. Here's the wording of the resolutions of both Commons and Lords in 1998. It is expedient, I'm quoting, it is expedient that the tribunal be established for inquiring into a definite matter of urgent, urgent public importance. It's probably this month, it's the 22nd of March as far as we know, that at last Savile is going to be published. Uh, on the line, the Guardian Security and Defence Editor, Richard Norton Taylor. Richard, why have we got to wait until the 22nd of March? Why, what's taken so long? Well, you might have to wait a bit longer. But um, 22nd of March, it's, 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 uh, it's been going on for 10 years more, 12 years, £200 million. Pounds. It was originally going to cost £10 million, pounds, according to Tony Blair, who agreed to set it up in 1998. Well... They've had 900 witnesses. Very, very difficult, some people say impossible, um, to come up with a judgment, will satisfy anybody, a conclusion that will satisfy everybody. And I think um, some families of some of the victims have said that they're going to, they, they will seek a prosecution anyway. They've already said that. They haven't even seen the report. And I guess some, maybe some paras are uh, maybe unhappy with whatever it says, whatever it says, also. But the problem is that uh, it's going to be, uh, well, Savile wants to give it to, to the, um, Sean Woodward, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland on March 22nd. Um, but he's also said, Sean Woodward has, that the government will have to look at it for uh, security vetting reasons and legal type reasons for a couple of weeks, maybe, before anyone else, including the families, sees it. After the election? Well... That's the key question, and it would be ironic if uh, it's going to be postponed because of a general election uh, demands rather than uh, because of Savile himself delaying it. Because if the general election, say, on May the 6th, where everyone assumes it will be, then you've got uh, Easter as of early May, April, then you go back for a sort of proroguing parliament uh, the end of March, maybe even the week beginning March 22nd, certainly pretty soon after that. Um, my, people tell me in Whitehall and around about sources quite close to inquiry, if we can call it that, call them that, um, that it may well be postponed. And no government will want it to have a... It may not even be a parliament, because it goes to parliament. It's presented to parliament, this report. Right. Can you tell me, uh, we have um, we've listened to the Iraq inquiry, the Chilcot inquiry, uh, since uh, last autumn. It's sort of overshadowed because there's far more going on. For example, the today it's the I think it's the fifteenth week, the anniversary, if that's what it is, of the Bahamusa inquiry, which was the um, which was set up to look at the the death, the circumstances surrounding the death of Bahamusa. 
um, in, in, in Iraq with a lot of people, soldiers, uh, on the line here. Yes, um, I think, and the root of it is actually, I didn't go back to, in a sense, a curious kind of way, it goes back to 1972, whereas we've seen in many inquiries, um, including uh, other ones dealing with, um, with, with MI5, the security service, actually, is that um, five so-called heavy techniques, interrogation techniques, including hooding, were banned in 1972 because of uh, practices in Northern Ireland. And Edward Heath, the then Prime Minister, said that they will never, ever be used again. Now, we have seen from evidence that uh, soldiers who went to Iraq were not trained, and indeed intelligence corps people as well as the um, squaddy, as it were, and uh, were not trained uh, and not told about uh, training techniques and what was lawful and what was not lawful. Indeed, there was confusion through the chain of command in the army and other services about what was lawful and not lawful. It is compounded, the whole problem is being compounded, because the Human Rights Act applies to places abroad where British soldiers are in charge. That includes uh, detention centers which, uh, where Baha Musa uh, died. And the Human Rights Act demands a full, independent, and effective uh, inquiry into the incident. The uh, Minister of Defence lawyers, and I think government lawyers generally, and the poor, benighted, overworked military police were slow to appreciate the significance of that. So the courts here basically said, you have to have a public inquiry. Des Brown, the then Defence Secretary, sort of uh, jumped before he was pushed by the court by the High Court uh, and accepted a Baham Yusra inquiry. There's another inquiry going on. Well, it just hadn't been started, actually. It's about to get started on the so-called Danny Boy incident where Iraqis were detained in Amara, north of Basra, a year after Baham Yusra, 2004, um, because of the, really, the incompetence of, I'd say, incompetence of, of some uh, government lawyers uh, in, their, uh, in their explanation of the military police inquiry to high court judges mm. uh, and and the high court judges made it quite clear that they were um they were they were angry about what they, they described as the as the incompetence actually of some um, of government lawyers that has led to a major um, a public inquiry into that too <laughs> yeah and there'll be another richard norton taylor thank you very much for putting that straight um I tell you what, any other business, John, before we move on to should we listen to the uh, old and bold? Mm. Um, did you anybody see the Newsnight poll? 64% of British people think the war in Afghanistan is unwinnable. Do we take any notice of this, John? I think so. I think there's a genuine anxiety among the, the public to do the right thing by the British soldiers who are, who are laying their life uh, on the line and wondering whether the political leadership is doing its job and explaining why they're there properly. But I think there is growing concern about getting results, even though they're told it's a long haul, and, uh, you can't expect, you know, um, people to be throwing up a, a white flag in a week's time. But I think they do reflect a great deal of concern in this country. Julian, sometimes I think um, I, I would like to sort of black out everything like this. I mean, it's a unre- totally unreasonable thing to do and say, listen, all these polls, all these leader writers, etc., it, the only people that get any comfort out of it, as far as I can see, would be if I were in the Taliban, for example. I would read all the uh, Newsnight polls. I would say, right, that all the, all the guys, youth guys who are thinking of going over to NATO, uh, just read that. Uh, you can just hang around. It's, it's going to happen anyway. 
Yes, I, that's the sort of the war was lost in, in, in the New York Times yeah. in, in um, Vietnam syndrome. The problem is that we live in a democracy which has a free press, thank God, and however bloody awful it is in some ways, you have to put up with it. Um, careful, and, careful. And get on with it. <laughs> Uh, and what's got to happen is ministers have got to keep plugging the information, keep putting across where we're doing well, showing where the successes are, and that is the only way you do it. You can't just say to people, shut up, you're not going to have any news, you know, blank newspapers. That would be quite wrong. Right. And then actually the Taliban would have won, yeah. effectively. Yeah. <laughs> John, can I move on? Uh, Turkey, talking about uh, the, the military, they've got some revolting generals, we're told. Yeah, Why? It's, it's a tradition in that country, alas. Uh, I mean, since uh, 1960, there have been four different military coups, and in fact, the first one was a tragedy because it ended with uh, the Prime Minister, Adnan Menderes, and the brilliant Foreign Secretary, uh, Fatan Rustu Zorlu, who negotiated the, the Cyprus Agreement, being executed. I think uh, it's... And a, but they've been arrested this week. A large number have been arrested. I mean, the former general who was the chief of general staff, uh, the senior admiral, senior air force commander, and some 47 other senior officers. Because it was said they were going to try uh, and overthrow the government. It was a coup called the Sledgehammer Operation, which goes back a, a number of years and was intended to get rid of the... Um, government which they regarded as being uh, not secular enough, not uh, authoritarian enough. And so I think uh, it'd be interesting to see how the trial goes, because if they are found guilty, it will enormously strengthen the hand of uh, the Turkish government, of Mr. Erdogan, because of a entry into Europe, uh, European Union negotiations would be improved if the military were not... What about Northern Cyprus? That would be a great help too, because the generals have been insisting that their military commitment there should not be undermined in any way. They've got 300,000 there, and also they wanted to have as many settlers accepted in any United Islands, so that if you remove that influence and uh, enable the government in Ankara to be strengthened, and not looking over the shoulders of what the military are doing, you might find that there's a greater democratic uh, evidence coming forth. Alexander? Well, Turkey is paying the price for not going with the Americans into Iraq and preventing the Americans using their territory. Because if they did, then the Kurdistan question would not be worrying them that much. The problem is that it terrifies them. If there is a separate, independent Kurdistan nation, Turkey will be very vulnerable. And that's the infighting is going on around this. As for Europe, I personally feel Turkey should never be accepted as a member of the European Union, simply because... This is a personal view. A personal view and mm. Moscow's view too, because oh, well, that's it, it, because it mean, has conducted... John, just, just let me finish. <laughs> Turkey has conducted systematic genocide of European Christians in the 19th century, mm. in the 20th century. They have never apologized for that. Mm. And that's I why the French... I have seen the Russians power, apologizing uh, uh, for the gulags. John, John, they, John, uh, they're not trying to get into the EU. Yes, <laughs> you are missing the point here. And uh, Christopher picked it up, yes. So it should Brilliant. be, first of all, say, saying to people, yes, we accept that we committed those crimes. Otherwise, we're accepting a member that has committed genocide mm. against the Europeans okay. and becoming a member. I'm going to move on to something else. Um, um, Julian, so the Falklands thing, is still, we're not heading for a war, but then that's what they said in March, wasn't it, 82, uh, when you were uh, trying to sort it out. Um, Iran, well, the Iranians are saying uh, you must refer to it as the Iranian 
uh, golf. Um, that's very important. It is the sort of thing that Admiral Stanhope, um, the first sea lord, loves to hear, isn't it? Absolutely. He's saying, don't forget, A, we live on an island, B, we import 98% of everything we eat and burn and make by sea, and therefore we have to protect ourselves and our interests. And our interests include getting oil from the Gulf, Iranian, Persian, Arabian, whatever you like to call it. (laughs) It includes looking after our interests in the Falklands. Forget the oil the people themselves there, and the only people who can do that are the Navy. And, of course, he's, I hope, using this to bash people who are trying to say the next war is going to be like Afghanistan and the one-off, that's going to be like Afghanistan and the one-off, that, that is rubbish. We haven't a clue what the next war is going to be like, and it might well be a maritime war. Somebody was telling me that when um, there was a particular Defence Secretary moved in to become Defence Secretary, he asked his Permanent Secretary... Uh, how many wars uh, or, or um, sort of skirmishes or whatever have we been in since the Second World War? And the answer was 40. How many did we predict? One. Two? Was it, Julian? I thought it was one or two. That was a long time ago. That was, mm-hmm. It was actually um, uh, Carrington who asked that question. He was asking that question in 1971. Right. Um, so there have been quite a lot since, mm-hmm. which have not been predicted. Yeah. There we are. Talking about prediction, John, Burma, or... or um, um, Myanmar? Myanmar. We can't call it Myanmar because the government doesn't recognise the, uh, the people who changed the name to Myanmar, so Britain, that's why Britain calls it Burma still. Did you know that? It's one of the reasons why they're, they're, they're so resistant to the junta, but there's a slight uh, glimmer there because the UN uh, Human Rights Envoy uh, is ending today a five-day visit on the first day, he had a meeting with the lawyer of the uh, National uh, Liberty uh, League, and uh, that is the, the party of Aung San Suu Kyi, and she is hoping to get released before an election is due uh, later this year. Whether that happens, I don't know, but there are still over 2,000 political detainees there. Mm. And the Karens, the small tribe are being persecuted as they never were before and even two people who translated for the economist in the recent cyclone have been arrested I mean um, me, uh, is this the same human rights uh, representation that's been going to Zimbabwe Um, or is that another lot? No that's another one Uh, uh, good good job isn't it you, you see the, the obvious uh, defects of the system very clearly. You don't need an expert to do that because Zimbabwe is in a dreadful mess. I mean, the white farms are still being invaded by uh, people that are authorised by uh, Mugabe's uh, ZANU-PF party. Um, Mugabe controls all the reins of power despite the power-sharing agreement over years ago. And the man who might have had some influence, uh, President Jacob Zuma of South Africa, is, is so busy going to the baptism of his 20th child, um, half of them out of marriage, and he doesn't Almost want anything two, two to football happen. Teams. <laughs> well, that's it. He doesn't want anything to happen that would upset the situation in Southern Africa when the World Cup is about to take place, so that uh, everything is allowed just to get into a state of chaotic deadlock. There you are. You get serious stuff on here. Yeah, but uh, can I go on. one light touch about Burma? That was a light touch. Uh, no, I mean, on, on my website, uh, uh, one of our correspondents, mm-hmm. we have spoof breaking mm-hmm. news, and he said, mm-hmm. he wrote, um, 
Uh, breaking news. Worldwide poll reveals that practically no one uh, cares what happens in Burma, whatever it is called, called now. <laughs> and we had quite a response. I think some, somebody from Burma actually wrote something and said, how dare you? But it was just a sort of lighthearted. But it is true. I'm quite interested. Can I just... I, I, had, I was just scribbling down a list of people or countries that I had to get used to again. They changed their name. Sri Lanka, which used to be Ceylon, Iraq was Mesopotamia, not in my time, of course. Iran, Persia... Uh, Burkina Faso. What was Burkina Faso, everybody? Guinea. No, Upper Volta. Upper Volta. They used to say that, I tell you, you wouldn't like this, but I tell you, they used to say the Soviet Union was Upper Volta with missiles. Did you know that? (laughs) I know. And Cambodia, uh, which was Cambodia. You made the joke up. Listen, I want to talk about something quite serious at the moment. Um, uh, The... Society, as we know it in this country, I think it makes you squirm at the moment. Um, and because we go around telling other people what they should be doing, okay? So, if I lived in, say, Afghanistan or anywhere, we preach the right way to govern society, don't we? We say, this is how you've got to do it. What would I be thinking of recent events, say, in the United Kingdom? Let me go through this lot. We have, this week, the Prime Minister apologising for the United Kingdom's role in sending more than 130,000 children to former colonies where many suffered abuse. That's the Child Migrants Programme that was going right up to 1970. The United Kingdom is the only country with a sustained history of child migration over four centuries, right? Um, we've got the Prime Minister accused of hitting people in his office. He says, I didn't. I never hit anybody in my life. But he's been accused of it. And everybody's saying now that the chief secretary, uh, uh, cabinet secretary, may have had to talk to him about it. We've got MPs ripping off taxpayers for their own sometimes outrageous expense claims. We've got a big defence contractor apparently paying huge bribes. We've got the heads of bank getting millions and millions of bonuses, even though they nearly bankrupted their banks and sack staff with others out of work. Uh, and then we've got, as we've been reporting early in the programme, the House of Commons Defence Committee saying, mm-hmm. we don't know where <laughs> We're incompetent, basically. Now, we can go on, and I will if you're not careful, but we, shouldn't we begin to wonder, anybody, shouldn't we begin to wonder why others are supposedly going to have to behave more or less like us and take our advice? Well, the Russians actually think that Britain has a wonderful system bureaucratic system that uh, the Parkinson law, you know, the, the, they, they love it and they think that if they had a, even something close just remotely close to it we would have lived in heaven there in Russia and uh, basically what you are saying of course is correct because the overall situation is just just falling apart in front of us but you must also remember we have a prime minister in government for two years who doesn't really understand what he is doing i mean our website is running a spoof uh story tomorrow about the chilcot inquiry and which is the iraqi inquiry yes and that we've got is this an advert and they've got the transcript of of brown's answers Right. Already, because they're already prepared. Yeah. So most of the questions by Sir John mm-hmm. would be, when did you first realize you were mm-hmm. destined for greatness, Prime Minister? Yes. And, 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 and so on. We so what I'm saying pe- is on, the should... overall situation mm-hmm. is so bizarre at the moment we that remind... your list would have been probably, you probably have another 1,000 mm-hmm. Four or five there. pages, actually. <laughs> we, we, we should remind people that the reference to the Prime Minister and the Chilcot Inquiry is that tomorrow week, 
the Prime Minister will be uh, mm-hmm. appearing before the inquiry from 9.30 to 3.15 in the afternoon. It's uh, a long stint. Uh, see what he's got to say. And we will next week. Julian, uh, am I just spoofing here? Or is there, mm. is there something about looking at our own society and then telling other people how to do it? Well, I think we are being hypocritical, yes. Mm. I suppose it's a question of degree. Perhaps we don't murder and torture people as happens in other countries. Perhaps we don't um, starve people in the way that happens in other countries. So We do maybe, help invade them, though. We help invade them. But perhaps uh, we may be bad. We ought to look at ourselves. We, we oughtn't to be completely um, pleased with what we do. But I don't think we're as bad as all that. And, but on this point, I, mean, I think it's ridiculous that, that the Prime Minister has been uh, apologising for something he wasn't even involved in, this child migration. It's ridiculous. Mm. Why apologise for something he wasn't he involved wasn't in? He wasn't even in politics, then. He wasn't even in politics. He wasn't even born mm. when it started. <laughs> no. no. John, um, uh, again, are we going over the top here? But it is, it is a point, this, how others see us. Yes, indeed. I'm surprised you didn't add to the list the name of the former England captain uh, of the football club, Mr. Terry, who... Oh, no, you get applause for that. Well, he was alleged to have paid some £750,000 to a lady with whom he had an extramarital relationship in order that she shouldn't disclose the details of that. Well, I mean, he's held up as a, a great role model, a dad of the year. I think there is a lot to be blamed on the media, though I'm supposed to be upholding it, by exposing a lot of the inadequacies of the society in which we live. Um, in many ways, as, uh, as General Thompson said, that um, uh, we're not quite as bad as we're portrayed. But on the other hand, it does sound a little bit uh, hypocritical to be preaching to the Africans about corruption when our own MPs are finding as many ways as possible to be corrupt. But on the other hand, if British taxpayers' money is being used to help uh, other countries, I don't think it should be used to prop up uh, politicians' greed in, in these various countries. It's a pretty damning sort of thing to say, John, and that's what we're doing, is to propping up greed. I think in many cases we are. It's difficult to see a country in Africa where hands are clean uh, at the senior government levels. Uh, I think... Uh, Liberia is one, uh, maybe um, Zambia is another, but uh, no, it's it's not easy. Yeah, we're, we're, we're getting into another area here, isn't it? And that is, you start to get to the put your own house in order, but also it's something, should we, in fact, be getting involved? Should we not just sort of say, right, if you're spending, I don't know what it is now, mm-hmm. 3.4 billions in, in Afghanistan, why not give it to the security mm-hmm. services? and say protectors at home, something like that. Well, you know, uh, the great Russian commander, Alexander Suvorov, introduced this system. During a long military campaign, he would weigh the people in charge of provisions. If they weigh more when the, at, the, at, the start, uh, sorry, at the end of the campaign, he would shoot them. So this is a good system to prevent corruption. But I think We Julian, call it the House of Commons Defence Ju- Committee. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Julian made the most important point. You know, okay, there's a problems, problems, problems. But in Russia, we've seen problems turn into murder. We're now witnessing China killing, what, 2,000 people a year, executing. 2,000 people a year, I think, capital punishment. So all those problems problems should be balanced. I mean, you should weigh them and, and see uh, the big picture. And the big picture is that Britain is not bad. 
Hmm. And, and the Argentines... Which is why you're here. Yes, Argentines exactly. pre-1982 were behaving in exactly the same way, mm. uh, like throwing live people out of helicopters over the sea. Um, and they killed thousands of their own mm. people. I think one of the difficulties initially was the, the mistaken idea that you could export democracy uh, and land it in other parts of the former empire. The, this doesn't really go down well when there are uh, tribal factors which didn't allow for what we call a loyal opposition. So the idea of you know restoring uh, stability to Afghanistan and then putting in democracy, I think, is a waste of time. Democracy will not survive. Well, we- what we learned then, John, in the, say, let's forget the first Gulf War mm-hmm. because that was specifically an invasion of a territory where we had a, an obligation mm-hmm. to defend. Mm-hmm. But from 2003, what have we learned in the seven coming up to eight years? Not easy to see. We've learned that you, you can have military successes, but you cannot really um, take them further forward into... Um, Establishing a stable society, you, you've got to take account of many other factors than military, economic, and financial. So, for example, you want to put in aid uh, programs, but from you were saying about the very department that has put in aid programs, is it can't find the money? It's, it's well, it can monitor the money that it does get, and it cannot see that it is uh, properly used. But it's not a unique problem to this country. I mean, I, I talked to. A, uh, an Indian minister the other day, and he was saying that you know, the trouble is that the aid that is dispensed in Delhi uh, uh, becomes a one cent of, of, of ten by the time it gets down to the village level because everybody takes a little uh, tip on the way. Yeah. Now the Russia, from a Russian point of view, the problem with Britain at the moment is that the defeatist elements, which are minority, mm. are always imposing their views on British people. Mm-hmm. First of all, let me give you an example. In Iraq, the British army performed well. There was no mission. It couldn't sort of succeed, you know, visually. And yet, you listen to anybody, security corresponds. Well, the thinking in Whitehall is the British army didn't perform well. Rubbish. It's rubbish. They performed a task which was never given. Secondly, in Afghanistan, 63% tell Newsnight they see the war cannot be won. How do they know? Are they military people? Newsnight, I will not trust Newsnight's poll because they will ask people who don't know. So this defeatist uh, nature of Britain is dragging it down. And at a time when there's a f- another war brewing up in the Falklands, you can't have those. Well, it's not a war, bro. No, there is a war. Well, you know, technically speaking, yeah. there's a, 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 you know, a standoff between there. You can't have those people saying, well, you know, we really should give away the Falklands because it's not really ours. Oh, the British Empire is finished and so on. This is bad for morale. You have soldiers dying in Afghanistan. You cannot talk about this war not being able to win. This poll is defeatist. It should have been banned. And Newsnight should be told by the Defense Ministry, what are you doing? Why are you fighting on the side of the Taliban? What is wrong with you? You are being paid by the British public. Because exactly as Julian was saying earlier, because if you've got a free press, three, you free ban- television, yes, you've got to be able to do it. Su- you can't subvert your own def- def- forces. You can't do this. You can't go against your own voice fighting the war. I was thinking um, one of the bits in that poll, it said that the, um, the people who were really saying that uh, it's going to be difficult, if at all possible, to win in Afghanistan were the older voters, mm. the old and bold, the grey beards. 
Um, I wonder if that tells us something, Julian, that um, you know, we, are, we are increasingly an older population and therefore an older electorate. This is something which the politicians ought to heave on board, isn't it? Yes, but to pick up the point that Alexander made, in fact, I had my opinion worth with that poll when I came up on the screen, would you like to comment? And I commented, well, why are you asking a load of people who don't even know? (laughs) (laughs) know, Actually, that's it. Mm. Uh, They don't know. So so the poll is asking questions of people who can't answer them Mm. because they don't know anything about it. That doesn't mean you don't do it. Except that you could say the BBC is silly to ask this question in the first place because they must know they're asking the question of people who don't know the answer. So why do it? But you could say the same thing perhaps about um, do you think that the health service is bad? I know a lot more people would have had experience of the health service. Um, But most of us, most of the general population actually don't know anything much at all. And so when asked big questions like, Mm. are we going to win, then it's not not Mm. likely that we'll be experts. And so you take that to the next degree and you say, well, therefore, you ask this question for one simple reason. You want to reflect the opinion, the general opinion of the country that actually doesn't know, but it has a gut feeling. And at the end of the day, those are the people who are voting. It's very dangerous to to act like that, because when you mention the NHS, everybody, everybody knows something about the NHS every day, right? So that's a subject they know about. How can you ask a layman about things that he has no idea? None. So you have to Well, okay, let's let's take another one. Uh, Should we have a third runway at an airport? Doesn't matter which one, but we know which one. Yeah, but that's, again, it touches upon so many people, you know, so many jobs and Mm. so on and so on. What I would like to say is this. BBC would have done it differently if it said, look, we asked 100 military experts, you know, former commanders Mm. and so on, what is the chance? There would be a completely different opinion. Completely. I would bet you it would be sort of 13 against... You know, 60 saying, yes, of course, it can be done if it's done properly, and that would be sort mm. of in the middle. It would be completely different, what because did you, they, these are pro, pro, professionals. I, mean, I, even, I mean, even I, that sounds pretty conceited, feel somewhat um, worried about talking about Afghanistan, because I've never been there. And therefore, do I really know anything about it at all, other than what I'm told and what I read? I can at least look at it with a soldier's eye because I've been in places that are similar to that. But even I don't feel comfortable sometimes commenting on it, because I don't really know what's going on there. And that's a general talking, by the way, by the way, uh, <laughs> of the Royal Marines. But equally, there is a danger in any democratic society to uh, give authority entirely to experts, because experts have so often been proved wrong in the past, and I think it would be unwise to ignore the views of the ordinary individual who pays his taxes, who goes to his work, comes back, and looks after family, and say to him, you don't count, it doesn't matter what you think, leave it to the experts. I think there's a... Because the experts being government. But I think there is a, there, the point that Alexander makes, I go along with, that there are things that you can ask people's opinion on which impo- impinge upon them. You know, do the railways work? What do you think of the tube system? Have we got too many buses on the streets? Uh, etc. That Everyone can talk about that because they've experienced But at it. the end of the day, uh, or at the end of this, in a few weeks' time, when we have a general election, the issue of Afghanistan, perhaps for the first time for, a, for many, many years, uh, whether or not we should be in a war and defence spending, 
is going to be one of the major election issues. That's why this is important. It is important, but the problem is that the people who should be providing the answers are not trusted by the public, the politicians, because they've got so many bad marks against them for the way they behave. Everyone thinks they lie about everything anyway. Um, the politicians. The politicians. And so they're on to a hiding to nothing. So though, though they should be briefing the public about what's going on, a lot of the time the public say, oh, well, you know, they would say that, wouldn't they? Yeah. There's a report in one of the papers this week that, uh, that Gordon Brown uh, yelled at uh, Tony Blair, you're ruining my life. Mm. Now... <laughs> Why don't you marry me or something? <laughs> yeah, you're ruining my life. Um, and now when you, when you think about it, this guy is now... Prime Minister. Mm. That's the unease. And so I think I probably do want to have an opinion because you get a sense that maybe the other guys aren't, aren't, aren't running it properly. Now, um, somebody who might actually run things quite properly, uh, of course, me. Sarah Palin. I will tell you, John, Sarah Palin, your favourite woman, the Fast Eddie Award for the SITREP mm. quote of the week, sent in this week by Chief ERA Tom Kopak, now living and retired in Australia. He says, not only the pig who has its snout in the trough. Well, that's deep. That is deep. Well, we who just said that. Uh, Chief ERA Tom Kopak of Brisbane, uh, Australia. Uh, Sarah Palin. Oh, my goodness. Right. Yeah, yeah. Your favourite person. All okay, right. tell them to the MPs at Westminster. That's it for this week. My thanks to John Dickey, Julian Thompson, and to Alexander de Krasov. We'll be back here at the same time next week on BFBS Radio 2, 4 o'clock UK time. Until next Thursday, I'm Christopher Lee. Mary, she's in the hut. With Christopher Lee.